0: This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and the Institute for Unfinished Research has concluded that 6 out of 10 people. My co-host is John Passan, co-founder of Mandarin Companion founder of Allset Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, Sinosplice.com, and hates that hotel bath towels are so thick and fluffy that he can barely even close his suitcase. John and I discuss a research paper on learner engagement with vocab apps. Whether you're an independent learner or a teacher, there's plenty of surprises and takeaways for you. Interviews with Jonathan Coveney, whose obsession with Chinese took him on a winding path of learning the language. Especially for all you study nerds out there, don't miss this one. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. Hey everybody,
1: my name is John Pasden. I am in Shanghai, China, still under lockdown. How's everybody doing? Better than me, I hope.
0: I hope so, John. I mean, there should be a light at the end of the tunnel at some
1: point, right? Yep. In the meantime, my beard is growing and uh, my world is very small. You're looking like an inmate, man. <laughs> All right, anyway, we've got other stuff to talk about today, thankfully.
0: That's right, John. Today we're talking about a research paper. Uh, I felt it was, it's time to delve back into some of this interesting research that's
1: coming out in the world of
0: second language
1: acquisition. Okay, so the name of the paper is Stimulating Learner Engagement in App-Based L2 Vocabulary Self-Study, Goals and Feedback for Effective L2 Pedagogy. And this is by Xue Hong He and Sean Lowen. Right. So that was a mouthful there.
0: So let's at least translate the title of this one. So um, this is pretty much saying it's about uh, engaging with apps, right? Uh, Apps to help you learn a language.
1: Yeah. And the thing about this paper, which threw me at first, is that it's not a paper actually aimed at helping independent learners use apps to master a language. It's more for teachers. So if you're teaching a language course and you want your students to also use an app to, um, you know, to further their study outside of the classroom as part of their homework or whatever. Then, how are you going to stimulate engagement? How are you going to get them to really use the apps? That's what this paper is about.
0: So, I think one of the first things that kind of struck me, John, as I like getting into this uh, paper was how they first went over like all these other studies. And any good research paper is going to do this. They're going to look at other papers that were written about this subject and see, hey, what were first some takeaways? And I think the most surprising to me, John, was how there was a a review of 345 studies. It was a meta-analysis paper. Um, Pretty much what they found out is that classes that used apps for learning the language as a part of a supplement to the class largely resulted in people just not engaging with the app and just not really using it
1: yeah it's it was a little disappointing but it's also kind of like well yeah when the teacher tells you oh here's this other thing which is totally optional that you can use in your studies like who who does that unfortunately not many people do
0: quite so and but it wasn't even just the optional you know parts of uh, parts of class there was also cited studies where hey they actually assigned it as part of the class and um Overall, just engagement was low. It's not like nobody did it, but it's like they were talking about engagement levels of like maybe 20% of the class doing it. Some of the higher uh, studies showed like maybe 40%, even down to like single-digit percentages of people using it.
1: Yeah, and these are not crappy little apps. These are well-known, like really well-funded apps like Rosetta Stone and Duolingo and Anki. Well, maybe that one's not quite as well-funded, but anyway, it's uh, it's a (laughs) solid app. Yeah. And so they're still they're still not working. But one of the things that I thought was most interesting was at the beginning of the paper. And they start talking about motivation and engagement. And, you know, motivation is a basis for subsequent engagement. Another quote is a uh, motivation only indicates a student's potential for actively pursuing learning. Engagement captures the part of motivation that is converted into action. Mm. And I was like, all right, that's really cool. Motivation engagement. But actually what it boils down to in the paper, and you know, it's not the researcher's fault. A paper has to has to have an experiment that's simple enough that you can actually do it, right? But engagement kind of comes down to how many times they use the app every day or how many words they review in the app, which is a gross simplification of engagement. But you know, what can you do?
0: Yeah. So it's, you know, I think it definitely makes sense. Like one of these things where, hey, you're super excited about it. Maybe you feel feel really motivated, but, you know, we've encountered individuals or maybe we've had times like that where, yeah, we, we were that felt that motivation, but we actually ended up doing nothing. Right. So, uh, yeah, the engagement's actually following through. But I, I think what was interesting, and I like how they did separate this out, was that just also because you're engaged doesn't mean you might be highly motivated or it doesn't always indicate what is motivating you. Yeah, that's tricky and it's
1: complex. And it's something that they attempted to uh, target in the, in the actual experiment. Why don't you describe the experiment for us, Jared? You bet. So
0: what they did is they were, took a class of students in Japan who were learning English. And they had about, I think, about 65 students. And they randomly selected them and put them into 63. two separate groups. 63 to be exact. Thanks, John. So the first group, they called it the control group, and they just said, all right, we're going to give you this app, and I think they used Memorize uh, for this study, and they said, all right, you are supposed to go onto the app and study at least five words every day for five days a week, and I think for at least five minutes, five days a week, something like that. Okay. So that was the goal. The other group, they said, all right, you guys are also going to have this Memorize app, and we want you to use it. But you have to select how many characters you're going to review every day. And we want you to make a goal of at least five days a week and at least six characters a day. So they actually said, hey, the minimum goal is higher than what was assigned to the other group. Um, and they said, all right, so everyone got to essentially self-select and pick, hey, what is my goal? And so before the study, they gave him the TOEIC test, which is like an English proficiency test. And they gave him this test also, at the end of the study, which was roughly eight weeks, and um, that's what they did that's how they ran this study
1: Oh, but they were also providing feedback um, on the reviews and the and the treatment group right
0: that's right well both groups had some elements of feedback, so both groups here's what they had they had the leaderboards, so if you 've done like memorized Duolingo. Definitely, you have like those leaderboards. Like you're put into like a, a, a group, if you will, and you study, and you know a lot of people are jockeying to try to get up that ladder. And I know my son; he does Duolingo, and you know he's always trying to get to first or second spot in in his study group. In addition to the leaderboards, they also had this thing, unfinished list. So it's kind of like if you didn't study, you showed up on a list, you know, saying, "Oh, you know," it's kind of I like guess the sh- the shame and blame list, you know.
1: Hey, you didn't like study. If you didn't hit the minimum, right?
0: That's right. So they know who was not doing the test or who was not doing, you know, using the app. So these were these were uh things that both groups had. But the difference was for the experimental group. And uh you know, they were had had this goal setting. So let's let's talk a little bit about this goal setting
1: aspect and, and what they did. So one of the quotes from the paper is that uh psychological research on goal setting theory by Locke and Latham, nineteen ninety has found that setting specific and challenging goals together with goal-related feedback leads to better performance. Okay, so specific and challenging goals with goal-related feedback, those two things. So that was what the experiment was providing the, uh, the experimental group.
0: And that's right, and there's a lot of research suggesting that setting goals uh, can be really effective. Um, and what was interesting about this review, too, is, is they said, you know, hey, this is actually a, a pretty classic, it's an easily implemented uh, technique, but it's like rarely adopted as a motivational strategy, uh, specifically even with, with learning languages. Right.
1: And I got to say, this kind of makes me feel um, a little bit like the whole engagement thing where it's like engagement is reduced to like, did you use the app? And in this case, goal setting is reduced to... How many words are you going to review every day? Right, that's the entirety of the goal. Oh, and how many days a week are you going to study? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I I can see that setting challenging goals, you know, specific goals. You know, we refer to smart goals. Um, th- that's a good thing, but it's just such a such a, a minimal way to do it, like a number. You know. Yeah, that's right
0: and you know, I will say real quick as as well I, one of the apps we didn't mention that is cited in the study is Duolingo. I mentioned earlier about my son but uh you know I Duolingo is very very good at at getting you to engage with the app. They have a whole bunch of you know with leaderboards and you know different gamification aspects use it, right? Yeah, it I has. have uh so you know it has a lot of those things but uh but I think it's we'll, we'll delve into this a little bit further. It, is that whole thing of just because you're engaged doesn't mean you might be highly motivated to actually learn the language. It's more of like, where's your engagement? Like where's that coming from? Is it coming from, you know, goals, like something you want to achieve, uh, you know, with, with the language, or is it just something, you know, you're trying to keep up a, uh, keep up the Joneses, you know, on the app or try to beat the guy in the app. You know, are you trying to beat the game versus, you know, learn the language?
1: Yeah, so I'm a little bit conflicted. On the one hand, it's a little uh, disappointing that the study has such a simplistic definition of of engagement and goal setting. But on the other hand, if something that simple actually does have an effect on learners, then that in itself is significant. And then think about how much more, um, you know, a more meaningful goal and uh, a more engrossing engagement, like, will do for your studies. So... It's really important to know what were the results of this experiment, right?
0: That's right. So here's what happened. So when they did this study and they went for it eight, eight weeks, they found that the group of students that set goals, set their own goals specifically, achieved much higher engagement and reviewed a whole lot more words than the group that
1: was just assigned to use the app every day. But the learner engagement within both groups, it actually varied quite a bit. So we're talking about the, the average, right? That's right.
0: So on average for sure, it, it definitely was much higher. But you still had students in each group that didn't even use the app at all. Like had constant days of zeros, right?
1: Yeah, and I thought it was interesting how, uh, you know, the whole leaderboard thing, some people felt motivated by it and then others hated it or just totally ignored it because, like, they don't care about that competition nonsense, right? I thought that was kind of interesting.
0: That's right, and also the unfinished list board, which you know was kind of the the name and shame board. You know, some people are like, I just didn't want to be on that list, and other people are like, it was annoying. I didn't even care about. It. I didn't pay attention to it. So overall, the thing was is that these things, they like the the leaderboards, uh, unfinished lists, things like that. It did provide motivation for students to go in and actually like complete the tasks and use the app. And uh, and like I said, we did this the group that was allowed to set their own goals, they did perform higher and they did use the app much more. Now, like I said, there was a lot of variance. So pretty much what we had is that you had uh, more extremes, if you will. Uh, And just on average, even just on average, just overall um, a higher engagement. But there, like I said, there was still a variance. But um, what was most interesting, John, is that I would say, okay, we're looking at the engagement, right? Were people actually engaging and using the app to study and learn new vocabulary or review vocabulary? But what actually resulted in test scores? Because I mentioned, you know, they did the test uh, before and after the study. And I think this
1: is what's most interesting to me. Surely there was a dramatic difference because the vocabulary review was so helpful. That's right. But not. The actual test scores
0: had no significant difference. So there was no, like, uh, the group that studied more did not overall perform better on the test than the group that didn't study more.
1: Over eight weeks. One of the things that I liked about this study was that they actually got some good feedback from all the learners and they Mm -hmm. asked them how they felt about stuff. And let me quote part of the paper. Learners explained setting their own study goals gave them a sense of ownership and made them feel obliged to attain what they aimed for. So, um, you know, people were very conscious of the effect of these goals they were setting, even though it was only like I'm going to study, you know, seven words a day, five days a week or whatever.
0: And on that note, what was also important to mention is that it wasn't just like you set a goal and then, oh, at the end of the, you know, the study, did you meet your goal? No, Uh, like they had classes going on and the teachers followed up with students saying, I think they were, you know, giving feedback, you know, how, how were you meeting your goal, talking to the students about their goals and, you know, helping to give encouragement, you know, to
1: go ahead and meet their goal. And I thought this was also interesting about the study. Um I think this is different from a lot of the learners that that I know and maybe some of the people that listen to our podcast because they're they're self-motivated, they're individual, you know, independent learners, but a lot of the people that these teachers are coming into contact with that are using the apps as part of their classes, the students expect the teachers to like keep engaging with them about how they're doing in the app and and like they expect it to be really brought into the classroom and made part of the discussion. And if that doesn't happen, then it just kind of gets ignored.
0: Exactly. And what really kind of happened here is that, yeah, the students had the ownership, but they also, there was a a level of accountability. And not just accountability, but the support that, you know, you're describing there, John, is that, you know, hey, you know, we're concerned about you. You know, we're here to help you meet your goal, right? As opposed to maybe something punitive. Oh, you didn't meet your goal. Well... Now you got to go write 100 characters.
1: All right. So uh, how about we try to draw some conclusions from this? How is this helpful to the to the uh, listeners of our podcast who maybe are not in a class where the teacher is assigning uh, memorize reviews as homework,
0: memorize or Duolingo. Now, for, I just want to preface this, John, though. As I said, hey, there was no significant difference between these two groups on their test scores at the end of the study. But uh, I think we should note here that uh, when they did that test, there was less than ideal test taking conditions. Evidently, COVID had just started, um, you know, coming out, and they some students had to take a test in a noisy cafeteria, and some showed oh, up late COVID. for the test or some things like that. You know, COVID so, ruins everything. I know, I know. So I mean, it's not a total like cop out on that, but it was only they had some of those situations, and it was only like uh, eight weeks, so which isn't you know a lot of time to really see any real significant improvement um, unless you're doing something very intensive, right? Uh, even. Uh, but uh, there were some other studies showing that after 10 months, hey, you did, see, and people were using apps, they did see some improvement. So, okay, I just want to preface that first, okay? Um, so that's not to say that you you can see some results from apps, right? But I think one of my takeaways from this is that, hey, if you're self-studying, or even if you're part of a class, something like that, is the there's a, the there's a, there's a benefit in setting goals, but also having someone where you can... Check in with on your goals, like have a, a element of accountability, right, and and be making sure that you're getting some feedback uh, on how your goals are going along the way.
1: And I think the schools have it right, treating these apps as a supplement to to the interaction in the classroom. I think that has the potential to work really well, um, because we I think we all know someone who like only does Duolingo, and it's pretty hard to get fluent that way. You need something else, like especially interaction with a human, uh, to help you really improve. But um, but yeah, the goal setting. Uh, definitely helpful. Uh, You you can do that with a teacher. You can do that with a study buddy. Uh, It doesn't have to be as part of a study, right? So do take this uh, conclusion to heart.
0: And John, you have, uh, you know, a lot more experience in this as well, because, you know, with All Set Learning, you you do this with your clients. you, you, I think, you know, I've, I've worked with your tutors uh, over the years and and done some classes, you know, with All Set Learning. And, you know, it's always kind of like, hey, what are your goals? You know, what what do you, what do you want to do?
1: Yeah, that was why this is one of the most interesting parts of the paper for me is the part about, you know, goal theory, Um, because I think what's really cool is when you can talk to someone about your goals and they can give you feedback on them. And then together you can kind of refine them because it's great to have goals and you can come up with your own goals all day long. Sure. But especially when you're not sure about your goals, um, sometimes you just need something to spark an idea and then you can come up with a great goal. So, um, you know, I'm not saying it has to be a certain kind of person, but just being able to discuss goals, get feedback and feedback on the goals themselves, as well as on how you're progressing towards the goals. um, That can make a big difference. Definitely. And, you know, I'll add
0: another element to this. Um, I've been reading some other literature about, you know, goal setting and helping with motivation you know, and one of the things I found was that, you know, it's important to have, you know, some of those long-term goals. And so, you know, you may have that, like the, the, the effervescence uh, goal of like, I want to be able to read the newspaper in Chinese someday. Okay. We have talked about that before. But uh, it's important to have some near-term goals and really have focus on, be, stay focused on those. So you may have that vision of where you want to be. And, you know, you could maybe, uh, you know, couch that in terms of a vision you know, of a, of kind of the, the, where, where you'd like to be someday, but having that near-term goal, like what can you actually achieve in the next, you know, couple of weeks, uh, in the next couple of months is something that's, uh, you know, cause it's kind of motivating cause you can see progress towards that as opposed to, you know, some of that big goal of, I want to be fluent. That's kind of amorphous and it's hard to actually measure. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. And we've done other podcasts on goals. Um, so we'll link to those in the show notes, but, um, I hope It's clear that that is an important part of uh, really getting good at Chinese.
0: Absolutely. And brings it back to an earlier conclusion that if you want to get fluent in Chinese, or sorry, I said the F word, John. If you want to be proficient in Chinese, it's going to take a lot more than Duolingo.
1: But you can learn Chinese.
0: All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is... Manor Companion, Chinese graded readers. Today we're talking about our breakthrough level book using only 150 basic characters, Xiaoming Boy Sherlock. All
1: right, so this is a fictional character created by Jared and me. And uh, what we have done here is taken our Sherlock character, who is Chinese, named Ming, and told the story of how he grew up in, uh, in China. When, when was that? Around nineteen oh uh, something? Nineteen
0: uh, early nineteen hundreds. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's in the book. It's in the book. But uh, and so he has you know adventures uh, in school, a little bit like uh, Encyclopedia Brown. If you ever grew up, if you ever read that as a kid, I don't think I'm show my age there. But uh, yeah, you are. Anyway, he's one of these. Uh, one of these child geniuses that's getting into trouble and solving mysteries.
0: That's right. So we actually divided this story to three separate uh, stories within the book, uh, and it's a lot of fun. So you can go out and get in it today. It's Xiaomi Boy Sherlock, breakthrough level, creative reader using only 150 basic characters. Enjoy. <laughs> now it's time for rants and raves john what do you have for us today do you have a rant or do you have a rave
1: Um, i have a rave so um it's about the chinese name of this uh netflix sci-fi anthology show love death and robots so (laughs) um so a name like this is so easy to translate you know love death and robots so they actually did do that for the chinese name but then the uh, the Chinese uh, viewers they decided to give the show their own nickname, really, and yeah, because the show like uses icons a lot, uh, like are icons for love, death, and robots that you sometimes see like used online and stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, so Chinese uh, viewers they gave each of the words a character. So it's i si ji, <laughs> and uh, the, so ji meaning like you know machine robot and. This this name, like the first time you hear it, you have no idea what people are talking about. Like, Ai see, what are you talking about? Um, just can't understand it. If you see the characters, then it makes a lot more sense. So anyway, stuff like this uh, in China is fun. And of course, this show I don't think is officially, you know, on any platforms that the government endorses because it's not the most family-friendly show. It's pretty, pretty adult. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of Chinese people love it. So it's fun to see like these uh these Chinese spins that they put on uh, the American shows. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. So, I see.
0: But uh, but no, it's an actual is the title in English or is it in Chinese?
1: No, it's all in English.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Oh, oh, so I'm sorry.
1: It's an English show. I haven't even heard of the show.
0: But I guess you're saying they've got it dubbed into
1: Guess you're China. not into sci-fi. it's, oh, it's season 3. Season 3 came out this year. I
0: missed the boat. I've missed the boat. But hey, but well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, we'll have to check it out. All
1: right, don't watch it with the kids. You will be sorry. All right, so Jared, you got a rant or a rave?
0: All right, I've got a rant. And uh it's 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 couched a little bit in a rave. So, something I see frequently on uh on some of these uh subreddit forums uh about learning Chinese is people are always, you know, writing characters handwriting characters and posting on the picture and saying, how's my handwriting doing? How's this going? And, you know, it always gets lots of upvotes and people are like, oh, you know, it's going well, keep going. And it's like, it gives that impression of like, oh, you have to learn to handwrite characters. So I, being the person I am, uh, I, (laughs) I found a picture, uh, that came up on, on Facebook on one of my memories. And it was when I was at a government office uh, back in Shanghai taking care of something uh, with uh, with an employee with one of my businesses and I had to fill out a form in Chinese and I realized looking at this form in this picture this was the last time I needed to handwrite characters and you want to know what that date was John I do March 1st 2017 it was 5 years ago over 5 years ago was the last time I actually needed to handwrite characters <laughs> All right. Well, to be fair, you did leave China. I did leave China, but most people listening to this podcast are not in China. And since I've been back in America, I really haven't had that need. And I think even when I've been in China, I mean, like I said, the only times I really needed to handwrite characters is doing this, like filling out some sort of government form.
1: Yeah, me too. Uh, Filling out random forms. I can't even remember when the last time it happened was, but I know it's been this year. So, but even so, being this year, so you
0: mean you've only really needed to handwrite characters maybe once this year, once or twice, maybe yeah. So there you go. So anyway, so that that's a bit my rant to saying that, you know there's those people you know showing these pictures, and so I I showed my own picture about handwriting characters and like hey this was like five years ago. So hey, you know you don't need to learn to handwrite, or you can learn to handwrite. I, I once again we always advocate that. Yeah, yeah, sure go ahead and learn how to do it, but don't spend like hours filling books with, you know, characters that you're copying over and over and over, because it's
1: just... Unless unless you like to, because it's fun for you, in which case, more power to you. Is it fun for you, John? No. Then don't do it. <laughs> okay.
2: I'm Jonathan Coveney, but a lot of people call me Jayco. A few
0: years ago, we wrote an article about Jonathan's story of learning Chinese on MannerCompanion.com. There's a link in the show notes, but this interview covers entirely new ground.
2: I live in Guidin, China, where I've lived for going on five years now. I'm very passionate about Chinese and Chinese media and the Chinese language and full of opinions.
0: Jonathan's achieved an advanced level of Chinese due to persistence and at times sheer grit. In our chat, he reflected on how he learned Chinese compared to what he knows now about learning Chinese. Stay with us. All right, Jonathan, why did you start learning Chinese?
2: There were two reasons, and they kind of fed off of each other. The most immediate was my ex-girlfriend. Her family was originally from Shanghai, actually, but they moved to the States, and that's where she grew up and everything. We were pretty serious, and we hung out with her family a lot. And, you know, it was clear that if I wanted to have a relationship with her family, independent of her translating in a huff because she Mm. didn't really enjoy that role, which is totally fair. I was going to need to learn a language that I could use to communicate with them. And I use that wording just because they were from Shanghai. So if I wanted the perfect one, it would have been Shanghainese, which in her parents' case, their Shanghainese was way better than their Mandarin at this point, because since they left China, they didn't really need to use as much Mandarin as they would have if they had stayed in China. Whereas they kind of had this Shanghainese community in New York that they spoke a lot of Shanghainese with. They definitely could speak Mandarin, but their Shanghainese was you know, number one, which I thought was really cool. And New York is kind of amazing in that way that you can find these kind of niche communities. So yeah, so like, I'm currently 35. I started learning Mandarin at 28, 29 and i had moved to new york i had a job there things were going well and the situation with my ex-girlfriend kind of came at the right time you know i've always had an interest in chinese culture you know in college and afterwards i had a lot of friends either from china or whose parents were from china so there was always kind of a interest there in china and the chinese language and so It was at a time when I felt like I had a lot of free time, a lot of energy outside of work. And then it's like, okay, I'm in a pretty serious relationship. Her parents don't really speak very good English. And it's kind of funny because in college, I kind of – made a vowel. And that vow was, I will never learn Chinese. I will never learn a tonal language. I will never learn a language that uses the Chinese characters. Cause I was just like, ah, it's just too hard. I'm not smart enough. I don't want to do that to myself. So of course, you know, here I am year five in China and, you know, kind of <laughs> grappling with the language. The, the irony. It is ironic, but it's, it's a fun irony. That is great.
0: I'm curious just to know a little bit more about this. You say, you know, it was just time to start learning Chinese. And you strike me as someone who likes a challenge, right? Yeah. Is that maybe something as well that kind of drew you into Chinese?
2: That's not why I started, but I think that's why I continued. You know, language, and especially Chinese, there's just so many different angles that you can focus on and that provide different forms of enrichment conversation and literacy and watching a TV show, listening to an audiobook, doing calligraphy, writing. I mean, these are all things that are related to each other, but they also kind of can scratch different itches. You can kind of focus on them in different ways to different degrees. You can do different things with them. So especially once you get to an intermediate level and definitely to an advanced level, language study is no longer just studying the language, you know, learning grammar, learning vocabulary, grappling with textbooks or whatever, or, you know, reading y'all's amazing books, which, I mean, me and my other Chinese learning friends are always praising. And just for the listeners, mm-hmm. they, didn't, they didn't tell me to say that. This is... Straight from the heart. <laughs> I'll send you your check. Yeah, over. exactly. So so I think there's a lot of different things that you can do with language, but the further on you get with it, it becomes a tool to do the things that you want, which is a lot of fun, right? Like at this point where I've spent a lot of time learning Chinese and I feel like I can do a lot of the things I want to do with it, what I think feels different at this stage versus when I was more actively, let's say, learning Chinese in quotes, is that now my biology in Chinese is awful. Like if I wanted to describe mitochondria and ADP and all this biology stuff that I learned in high school in Chinese, I would be terrible at it. But it's not really like a language issue, right? It's not a I don't remember how to use la in this case or oh what's the word for to express or whatever. It's the same as any topic I wouldn't know in English. Like I would find a book, mm-hmm. you know, maybe like a popular explainer on biology, and then I would read it, and there would be some terms I wouldn't know, but it wouldn't feel overwhelming in the way that it did early on. It feels a lot more mm-hmm. like it feels in English, where it's just like, oh, that's just a topic I don't know. There's some technical jargon, and I, I love that feeling. I think that that's a super amazing thing to feel.
0: I appreciate you framing it like that because too often learners we're going about the language and it's always about what we don't know. There's always stuff that you're not going to know. But as you're bringing it up there, Jonathan, it's like, well, there's things in English you're not going to know and you can approach it largely the same way once you hit a certain level in Chinese.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It makes it a lot less, let's say, depressing <laughs> because it can be tough. <laughs> it can be yeah. really tough when you feel like you're so far away. But I think also just remembering there's no real endpoint. I think Chinese is a great example where different people in different places with different backgrounds have such different relationships to the Chinese language, the Chinese writing system, Chinese history. And to me, I think that that kind of helps ground me. I mean, there are people whose accents and grammar are better than mine will ever be in Chinese, but maybe they haven't read a bunch of wuxia novels and they like know nothing about the genre because that's something that I am passionate about, and they're not. I mean, I don't know much about chemistry in English, but if I did, you know, I could spend six months, a year, five years. You know, it could become a passion. And in Chinese, yeah. it's the yeah. same way. It's just I think, you know, you get educated in your native language, and so it makes it sound like it's a bad thing. But, it's just, you know, the system kind of has a general mm-hmm. set of knowledge that it assumes you should know. Like as, a, as an American who grew yeah. up in Texas, like I know about the Alamo right like remember the alamo yeah yeah <laughs> you got to know that and you know a chinese person learning english could be extremely fluent but know nothing about the alamo and it's just like that's that's fine but maybe they then lo- load up the wikipedia article on the alamo and the, okay now they know about the alamo
0: like oh now i know yeah yeah, yeah that, that makes a lot so awesome. listeners don't well, forget
2: well, you got to remember the alamo that's that's the rule <laughs>
0: Well, Jonathan, I want to delve a little bit into like how you went about learning, and I think this is going to be a great subject to hear from you because you have approached language learning from, I know, multiple angles. I think how you learned the language, but versus how you might actually think would have been better <laughs> for sure you to do it at different times for <laughs>
2: sure, absolutely. There were a lot of lessons from it, and you know, I've still kept in touch with people at various stages in learning languages, including Mandarin. And actually, Jonathan Becker, who you had on the show, is a good friend of mine. So we've chatted a ton about learning Mandarin. And you know, I think he's gotten a lot from my experience. But actually, I've also learned a lot. I had no idea how to tackle Chinese, to be honest. I had learned Spanish, the weird, casual way that people do when they studied a little of a language in in middle school and high school. And then they get serious about it afterwards, especially with the writing system. That was a part of uh, Chinese that I just didn't know how to tackle. One advantage is it had kind of been a while since I had tried to study a language. I was more mature as like a person and a learner. So I really was like, okay, I'm going to do it right. So I really Mm -hmm. took a kitchen sink approach. You know, a trend through my studies, both of Mandarin and Japanese, is I like to work with a lot of different teachers, especially for Mandarin, where there's a lot of different regions and regional accents. Of course, teachers are all going to, generally speak standard Mandarin. Still, you know, different <laughs> people have different ways of expressing themselves. They have uh, different regionalisms. They have different backgrounds, different interests. So even excluding pronunciation or whatever, I find it really important to make sure you're at least talking to different types of people. And that could be age group, background, region, whatever. Because if you just work with one person you develop your own little language with them you know they get used to your quirks they get used to your accent they get used to everything but then when you mm-hmm. you speak to someone who's not a teacher for example and you find out oh like my third tone is bad you know every time you use a word that has it they don't understand that's really valuable feedback.
0: It's sometimes like a parent talking to a toddler. I've got a three-year-old and, you know, he says something and most people can't understand it. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, he, he wants some grapes. You know? <laughs> exactly. Like it's that, exactly
2: right? like that. So I, I really wanted to do everything I could to have as diverse a possible source of conversation and input. And for me personally, when I study a language and Mandarin was no exception, conversation is by far my biggest priority. After that is being able to consume native media. And then, you know, it's kind of like eh, writing, output, etc. cetera. I mean, if you want to do them, that's great. If you don't, but for me, conversation is really the root, the key interest.
0: That's what you're focused on, right? Yeah,
2: that, that's what I was most focused on initially. Because after I came to China, it was uh, all literacy all the time. But really before that, conversation was the biggest priority. But, you know, I, I kind of started in a pretty traditional way. I found a teacher in New York who is a very lovely person who we kind of started working through the integrated Chinese series. And I ended up getting very intense. What I mean by intense is when I first moved to China, you know, I was doing 20 hours a week at the Chinese Languages Institute in Guilin, where I still live. And outside of that, I mean, I was doing four to eight hours a day of flashcards. Wow, I mean, it's kind of amazing that I was able to meet my now wife at the time. (laughs) I, I sometimes wonder how that went, but... I kind of took a break when I first met her, actually. But then I was like, no, I got to get back on it. So then I was still doing a ton of flashcards. And at the time, that was with an app called Skritter. And then eventually Mm -hmm. I declared bankruptcy, which is not an uncommon thing. Flashcard bankruptcy. And then I started using Anki, which is another flashcard app. I mean, there was like a six-month period, again, where I was doing like eight hours of flashcards a day. I mean, just kind of every waking moment was spent on Chinese study, you know, when you're in China, it's easier because if you go to eat, you can kind of say that's Chinese study. But it was intense.
0: I mean, if you put in that time in that effort, it's going to produce results, right? But looking back, what would you have done differently in that situation?
2: So, you know, this is where I got to give the shout out to my man Jonathan Becker.
0: If anyone listening, if you want to listen to his podcast, it's episode sixty-one.
2: You know, there's a lot more communities around learning Chinese now. I think more healthy approaches. I have a very large passive vocabulary, and that's fun. It's like a parlor trick. You know, my, my wife uses me as a character dictionary. Like, <laughs> she's too lazy to look it up on her phone. She doesn't want to write it. She asks me. But I think at some point, it's like I had to admit to myself, like, this is no longer language study. This is just like a perverse hobby that I've developed. And I think Anki is a great tool, and I definitely don't regret using it. But I think, you know, you've got to be really strategic with how you spend that time. Because even if your goal is to learn everything there's different ways to go about that. And there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different places that you can learn new words and new ideas. And Anki is a very useful tool for making sure that you can kind of maintain a passive vocabulary. But, well, A, it's just not a lot of fun. People Mm -hmm. kind of struggle with that. So I think that that's really important. You know, it's not the best way to create associations with those words, with those ideas. I mean, there are people who have techniques, et cetera, to do that. But I think at the end of the day, you know, when you read a book, or you watch TV show, if or you listen to an audio book, you know you're gonna be bombarded with a lot of new words, and that's overwhelming. Of course, that's why y'all have the Mandarin Companion series, and it's really amazing. But at some point, you take the plunge with more media, and it can be a bit overwhelming. But I can remember when I first heard a word, like, oh yeah, it was in that book that I read mm-hmm. that word, or it was in that story that that person had this character in their name and stuff like that those characters, those words are much, much, much easier to remember. I want to know it all and I want to know it immediately. And I'm willing to accept boring six months, a very painful six months, if if it'll get me there or something. Hmm. I've met a lot of people since then who, you know, they're really interested in, I don't know, various forms of Chinese media. And yeah, they use Anki, but they spend a lot more of that time consuming the media. Hmm. And it's a trade-off. I made a lot of very quick, but painful progress. But, you know, I see the people who are much more focused earlier on consuming a lot more content and they just have a lot less pressure. They're having more fun with the language. They're building those associations with words, ideas, grammar a lot earlier on. In the spirit of Mandarin Companion, right, whatever book you want to read takes a long time. You know, Mm -hmm. it's okay if you don't understand everything. It's okay if you reading this book feels very different from when you read things in English. Kind of accepting that feeling, you know, and, and just being like, if this book is really good and you feel like you didn't get as much out of it as you think you could, you can read it again, you know? Totally. I was always interested in the wuxia genre. If I had read one of those books at an intermediate level, there would have been a lot I wouldn't have understood. But that's mm-hmm. okay because there would have been a lot I would have understood. And then I could have just reread it again.
0: ...of like flashcards, right? Is kind of a bunch, but the one of the reasons of that is that you're learning those words in isolation, they're mm-hmm. siloed, right? And that you're not having that connection. The context, I mean, let's put a link term, right? There's, it's low contact, and it doesn't really show you how they all work together.
2: Yeah, you know, there are people reading books in Anki. I personally, that's not for me. But at the end of the day, just having a healthier mindset about the process, my man Becker, that's what I call him, he just has such a healthier relationship to Mandarin than I do. And it's great. It reminds me what learning a language can be like. Because for me, honestly, I'm kind of traumatized from it. Like people are like, oh, mm. what language are you going to do next? And I'm like, just no, never again. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, you know, Ah, they're like, oh, but weren't you talking about, you know, you're interested in French or maybe Korean. It's like, no, 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 never again. Like, never. <laughs> like, but, like, And I think that's bad. I think that's really sad. I mean, the languages I speak are really great. And I think it'll be good to spend time just focusing on enjoying those languages and maybe improving in areas that I want to improve, but my way of learning, even if it was effective in some ways, if it kind of traumatized me out of wanting to learn languages, maybe it was a little extreme. You know, I just keep beating up Jonathan because I think he's doing such a good job because he's made the process so much more fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I was terrified to use my Chinese even when I was at a rather advanced level. I was just like, oh, like, I'm not good enough. I'm going to be annoying to talk to or whatever. But he is out there and, you know, he lives in LA and he's finding people to talk to, you know, he's finding people at college, he's finding people in LA and he's not doing it in some kind of creepy YouTuber way where he's like dropping in on, on (laughs) middle-aged women and like, Oh, look at how good my Mandarin is, you know, like these are people who make it clear that they're excited to talk to him. And he's just had like so many great experiences with the language and, you know, He speaks good Mandarin, but he hasn't been studying that long. Like when I was studying just for a year, I would not dare to use Mandarin. And I lived in New York, you know, having that healthy attitude, making the language fun, leaning into the things that make the language fun and and just kind of accepting that it's a humble experience where you're not going to have the level of facility that you maybe wish you did. It's like, you'll get there, but the process can be fun.
0: I think that highlights the second point that I kind of see in your story here is The importance of, like, enjoyment in what you're doing, right? Yeah. Like you say, if you had taken some of that time of, you know, you're doing all the flashcards, but you actually maybe started consuming some media, reading, watching things, stuff like that, is that that motivation, if you're enjoying that, it can take you really far, even through those painful processes. Absolutely. There are other guys who have gone through, like, that very painful process of learning Chinese. but. The thing about it is that you didn't have to have that much pain, right? Yeah, exactly. It wasn't necessary to go through that painful process. And to a degree, there are some people that they see those people that went through that painful process, and it's kind of like, oh, well, I've got to do that too if I really want to learn language. But the reality is for any one person who went through that much pain to learn the language, there's probably 500 who did quit along the way, right?
2: And I see that all the time with how people kind of construct their goals. To me, that's something that's really important. And I do think that's one area where I've generally been pretty good. Even if sometimes the way I achieved those goals was a little pathological, I see in a lot of students is a tendency to approach languages, and I always call it aesthetically. And what I mean by that is we bring a lot of judgments, like aesthetic judgments, to what it means to be proficient in a language. I'll give a concrete example. Reddit is terrible and I, I try not to use it anymore. But so many people have called me a liar there because I'm like, I can read a book without a dictionary, but I can probably write 400 characters. And they're just like, that's impossible. There's no way. And I was like, okay, yeah, I guess it is Mr. Reddit guy. You know, for me, I was able to sit down and just kind of make a decision that I didn't want to prioritize writing for various reasons, and I did want to prioritize reading, and then I kind of adjusted my study accordingly. I see a lot of students who have this kind of intellectually driven idea of what it means to be like good at Chinese. Mm -hmm. But then those aren't necessarily things that actually bring them joy, Mm. right? Like for me, I knew that conversation brought me joy. So I focused really hard on getting good at conversation. Actually, at one point, at the very beginning of my studies, I was studying very traditionally. I was writing. I was learning the characters. I was going along with the integrated Chinese. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to learn how to write. That's not a priority for me. For a long time, I dropped characters completely. So I had a bunch of flashcards that were pinyin sentences. And this is like anathema- in the Chinese and Japanese language learning community, like pinion flashcards, that's (laughs) madness. Yeah, there's definitely a case for it, though. I wouldn't totally poo-poo it, right? I'm not arguing for that strategy per se, but what I am arguing is that I knew that conversation was going to make me keep going with Chinese. Mm -hmm. You know, I can learn the characters eventually, but if I can't talk to people, I'm going to get burnt out because talking to people in a new language just brings me a ton of joy. So I made that decision based on what I knew about myself and what would motivate me. And what I try and encourage people to do is really think hard about what you care about, because it's so easy to convince yourself that like, yeah, of course, I want to have the exact same knowledge that I have in English, in Chinese, or I want to be the equivalent of what I would have been if I'd grown up in China, that sort of thing, right? So there's a lot of like, oh, you can't write that's horrible. You're illiterate. And it's like, who cares? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, languages are tools, you know, they, they let you mm-hmm. do things and, you know, they'll be very impressed if you have, I don't know, read any classical Chinese at all. They're like, Oh, you like Wu Xiao? Like you like those stories? Oh, well that's okay. Yeah. Jin Yang, he's cool. But, Oh, what you like, Xian Sha stories? like, Oh, that's trash. You know, <laughs> like, cause we also make these judgments, right? Like in America, at least for a long time, people might look down on young adult fiction. Mm-hmm. Or they might look down on romance or Mm -hmm. these sorts of things. But these are things that bring a lot of joy to a lot of people, you know? Like, if someone learning English is really into romance, like, that's awesome to me, right? Like, in China, there's, like, a super popular genre of fiction, which is boy love fiction, Danmei. And it spawned a lot of really popular TV shows, like one called The Untamed. And there's, like, multiple communities that are fans of this genre. And they are really good about reading a lot like because they're super passionate about this genre of fiction so they don't want to be doing flashcards you know they want to be reading the book i mean they're very popular in china but like if you were to ask my mother-in-law she'd be like well (laughs) i probably wouldn't talk about that with her but she would just think it was a waste of time like oh why aren't you spending more time on the classical chinese you know that sort of thing so i just think it's really important to be honest with yourself about what is important because it's so easy to convince yourself that you should be focusing on things that don't actually make you excited about the language. I know a lot of heritage speakers of Chinese, and I think a lot of them struggle with this because, you know, in my friend's cases, their parents would be like, why can't you read Chinese? But they're just not motivated by it. That's not what excites them. And Mm -hmm. that's fine. You know, they can do so many amazing things with The Chinese language that, like, if you can't read and you're not excited about reading, you know, just be honest with yourself. But if you're excited about reading, you can read.
0: It underscores the importance of having, like, your motivation and having kind of your goals aligned with that. There's this email I had gotten from a reader, and we had a few exchanges back and forth, and he was preparing to take, like, the HSK4. That was his goal. But after emails, back and forth and talking about this, he's like, you know what? I realized the HSK is not even important to me. Yeah. You know, some arbitrary thing. So he's ditched it and now he's pursuing what he wanted to learn and he
2: was enjoying it. And I think that's awesome. A lot of students are exactly like that person. And I think that's really great where they can just admit like I don't need to take this test. I'm just gonna follow what excites me about the language. But other people want that structure. They need yeah. that structure. Yep. And and they're excited about having a really concrete test they can prepare for. To me the key is just making that decision for yourself.
0: Absolutely.
2: Every Chinese teacher I've had when I'm like, nope, I cannot write by hand. Every single one has made like this priceless, tortured face. But <laughs> it's, it's fine, you know. It's,
0: it's fine. I did make a post recently it was about the last time I needed to handwrite characters, and it was in March of 2017. I had a picture of it. I was at some office dealing some documents for my business there, and I'm like, this has yeah. been five years. That's the last time I needed to actually handwrite characters, and it was just a handful of characters that I had to look up anyway.
2: I don't want the pro-character people to come at me, but make that decision because it's something that motivates you, that makes you excited about the language.
0: If you love writing, and it's something you're passionate about, you just want to be able to handwrite because that's what you love to do, do it. And
2: Chinese people will think you are amazing. That's right. When you bust out your handwriting at a table full of aunties and uncles, they are going to just adore you. They will not adore me in the way that they will adore you if you can write by hand. But I'm okay with giving up that adoration.
0: Well, Jonathan, bringing this all together, what concrete advice would you give to someone who's just starting to learn right now?
2: As someone who spent a lot of time thinking about how to learn efficiently, there's how much time you put into it, And then there's how much you get out of the time you put into it, right? So that's what efficiency is. But, you know, if you put no time into it, no matter how efficient your methods are, you're going to get nothing out of it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think some people get overwhelmed, understandably, because it's a big endeavor. Like, you know, how should I be studying? What should I be doing? What's the perfect textbook? What's the perfect method? And when you start out, you are not going to have the perfect method. So what I think is much more important is listen to yourself. Put time into it and then just tweak. As you learn, just ask yourself and kind of analyze what's working and what's not. But don't kind of get too obsessed or too overwhelmed by, you know, is this like the exact right way to do it? Or am I going to get there in the end? I mean, if if you put the time into it, you will get there 100% people will say that some people have an innate talent for it or whatever i think that that talent counts for way less than just putting in the time necessary and yeah good study habits but like if you put in the time and over time kind of tweak you're going to get to a great place and i think that that's the key it's something that i struggle with which is just accepting that it's a process like that you know you you can start out with the wrong textbook series and maybe you know you spend a few months or even half a year on one textbook series. And then you decide, you know what? I think this other textbook series might be better. You've still learned something. You've still learned some Chinese. You still have more experience with the language. And then you switch textbooks and then you keep learning. And you're also learning what sort of studying works for you. Because when you can make that judgment, like, oh, this textbook isn't working for me, but this textbook is, mm. like, that means you now know more about yourself as a student, yeah. right? Yeah. And so when you start reading things like Mandarin Companion, you might find that that really is really exciting, that it feels really great, right? And of course, it's a shame that there aren't just, you know, a million different Mandarin Companion stories at a million different levels. That would be amazing. <laughs> someday, someday, But, you know, if someone can read that Mandarin Companion breakthrough and feel really excited about mandarin feel really excited about reading and then study a bit more read the next level study a bit more read the next level and each time they really feel something as they read these stories excitement about the language excitement about what they're reading to me that says okay well what do you know now like you know that you are a person who is excited about reading in mandarin yeah it's hard yeah but now you know that about yourself i mean i remember when i read great expectations in mm-hmm. The Mandarin Companion. Was that y'all's first level two? It
0: was, yeah, our first yeah, level two. Yeah, so, and
2: I was super excited about it. And I honestly cried. And it's a good story. You know, Dickens, a lot of people hate him because they had to read him in high school, but <laughs> The Man could create melodrama. But also just the fact that I could be moved in Chinese was extremely moving. I was engaging with a story in chinese that was making me feel all the emotions that a good story makes you feel that was just really overwhelming that experience helped reaffirm for me okay this is worth it you know like i don't know exactly how i'm going to get there in the end but being able to read books in mandarin is something that like i want to be able to do and i've been listening to audiobooks now which I mean nothing will ever make me feel as proud of my own studies as that does. It feels really truly incredible. But I walk every day and I was walking and listening to this audiobook and I was like tearing up on my walk hmm. just because the book was at this like really exciting moving part where things were coming together and it's like wow, like wow. I started this language and I was twenty nine, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Really cool.
2: Make it fun, be honest with yourself. And you can always tweak as you go. You know, There's a lot of great resources, a lot of great communities, but just f- focus on putting time and make it a part of your life, a fun part of your life. If you want to add in flashcards, you can add in flashcards. If you want to take them out, you can take them out. If you want to read more, you can read more. If you want to take a break from reading and focus on conversation, you can do that. But as long as Mandarin is a fun and interesting and motivating part of your life, you're going to get there. Other people might do it in three years. Other people might do it in five. Other people might do it in ten. Other people might do it in twenty. But it's not a race as long as it's fun the whole way you're going to enjoy it you're going to enjoy the journey
0: that is really insightful and i appreciate you sharing that experience because you've been through a wide range of experiences <laughs> in learning the language and approach it from a lot of different angles and it's great to hear you kind of pull that all together for that piece of advice jonathan i really appreciate you taking the time to share this perspective with us and it's been really insightful and i appreciate you taking the time
2: yeah absolutely it was a it was a pleasure
0: you have been listening to the you can learn chinese podcast help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends classmates teachers cousins mechanic candidate farmer mason pilot lawyer singer coach painter and that one guy named harry you can subscribe in itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and please write us a review so we know how we're doing you can find us on facebook and at mannercompanion.com, or tag us on social media hashtag apologies to john cena we just ran out of time The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo at SubChina, and our interview editor is Dominic Etchley. I'd like to thank our guest interview, Jonathan Kovany, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time.